Amen. Thanks be to God, and welcome once again to our Christmas Eve service. Thank you so much for joining us either in person or online. We truly wish all of you a very merry, merry Christmas. And without further ado, would you now bow your heads and please pray with me. Father, now as we have heard your word being read, we ask now, Spirit, that you would use it to speak to our hearts. Father, we know that as we reflect upon this year, as it comes to a close, there are so many things that we can fixate on, so many things that can discourage us. But Father, we just ask for your grace to be upon us so that we would reflect tonight on what is truly the solution and the hope to all of our problems and to all of our sorrows. We ask that as we come to sit at your feet, that you would indeed speak and minister to us so that we can face this world and go into this new year without any trepidation, without any fear, but instead hope and courage so that we can live out the call that you've given to your people of being a blessing to the world. And so, Father, I ask that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Are you prepared for Christmas? Are you prepared for Christmas? You know, given that this is the night of Christmas Eve, that may come across as a very ridiculous question, especially given the culture that you and I live in. For example, you and I live in a society that is notoriously known for preparing for Christmas. Dare I say, over-prepare for Christmas. By the time October rolls around, it's as if Christmas has already arrived. For example, you walk into a store, any store, and it seems like prices are already at Christmas sales. Items are already being sold that are Christmas-themed. And if you walk in the city, you drive around your neighborhood, businesses and neighbors have already put up Christmas decorations before the kids could go out Christmas, or excuse me, Halloween trick-or-treating. And then if you're one of the few minority folks who still listen to the radio for music, you hear Nat King Cole's chestnuts roasting on an open fire before November even arrives. We live in a culture that is always over-preparing for Christmas, and therefore, for you to hear me ask you that question, are you prepared for Christmas, your response, who isn't prepared for Christmas, Pastor? To which I would respond to your response, actually quite a few people. What's that? Yeah, it's true. You see, even though so many today prepare for the commercialization of Christmas, so very few people actually prepare for the consecration of Christmas. You see, the Bible teaches us that those who truly desire to prepare for this time as God intended, it requires so much more than the typical external things that we do this time of year. Preparing for Christmas requires so much more than pulling out your holiday sweaters. It requires so much more than sending out your season greeting cards. It requires so much more than placing those nice gift wrap packages under the tree. No, the Bible says that if anyone seeks to prepare for Christmas properly, it requires some real internal resolutions, internal reflections, and internal recommitments. And given that this is the last night to which any of us could truly prepare for Christmas, that is what I want to address today as we take a look at this passage in Luke chapter 3. And as we do, I want to extract for you three preparations that I believe God calls his people to do in order for them to properly prepare for this upcoming season. And so going back to the question at hand, are you prepared for Christmas? 
Well, you will be if you prepare in the following three ways. First, hoping God, not man. Secondly, stop playing the victim. And finally, realize God is most important. If you want to properly prepare for Christmas, you must prepare in these three ways. Hoping God, not man. Stop playing the victim. Realize God is most important. Let's begin with the first point. Hoping God, not man. Read again with me verse 1 of our passage where the author Luke says the following. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Licinius tetrarch of Abilene. Okay, come on back here. Luke, the author, begins our passage by naming existing political leaders who were alive during the times he wrote these words that we're studying tonight. Okay, And they all range from the various levels of government. You have the national level where you have Caesar. You have the regional level that includes Pontius Pilate. And then you have the local level that includes Herod and Philip and Abilene, such odd names. And New Testament scholars tell us that the reason why Luke is naming these specific political figures is because he's simply doing what all historians back in the ancient world did. You see, historians back in the day would date the events of what they are recording, what they are recounting, by naming the current reigning political leaders to serve as chronological markers so that as you read these names, you would have some idea of when these events that they are talking about actually transpired. But here's the thing. If you actually did some digging into the biographies of some of these political leaders that he names, you would discover that Luke actually has another reason as to why he names these specific political people, okay? And to help you figure out what that might be, let me share with you some of the things that I discovered as I prepared for tonight's study. First, let's consider the first political figure he names, Tiberius Caesar. The InterVarsity Bible Dictionary says this about Caesar. For 23 years, Tiberius loyally and unimaginatively continued Augustus' policies. His dourness gradually lost him the confidence of the nation, and he withdrew to a disgruntled retirement on Capri until his death. Now let's move on to Pilate. The same IVP dictionary says this about him. Philo can find no good thing to say about Pilate. He describes him as by nature rigid and stubbornly harsh and of spiteful disposition and an exceedingly wrathful man and speaks of the bribes, the acts of pride, the acts of violence, the outrages, the cases of spiteful treatment, the constant murders without trial, the ceaseless and most grievous brutality of which the Jews might accuse him. The verdict of the New Testament is that he was a weak man, ready to serve expediency rather than principle. And now let's end it with Herod. The Unger Bible Dictionary says this about him. Of him, Jesus said, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons. His administrations was characterized throughout with cunning and crime. He was intensely selfish and utterly destitute of principle, end quote. With every possible investigation that you could conduct on these names that Luke mentions, you see a recurring pattern. And that is the recurring pattern of corrupt politicians, compromised officials, and cruel leaders. These were all people who were essentially messed up leaders. And by naming these political figures, Luke is trying to convey a message to God's people that we still need to heed today. And that message is basically this. Stop trusting stop hoping in what man can do for you start hoping in only what god can do for you again luke is saying by naming these politicians to us stop hoping in what man can do for you start trusting in what only god can do for you and given the recent 
tumultuous presidential election that we have just gone through, I think this is something that we need to take to heart. You know, I cannot tell you how discouraged and how disheartened I was to see on various social media platforms of professing Christians, of prominent Christian leaders, saying the exact opposite of what Luke is telling us here in our passage. Because according to these quote-unquote believers, they would basically convey the message, in order for we Christians to have hope in this world, we got to make sure we have the right person in public office. In order for us to have hope in this country that we are a part of, we must make sure we have the right man or woman in the White House, in the courthouse, in the congressional house. But consider what the late great Chuck Colson once said about all of these issues. He writes this, quote, In recent years, Christians have urged a more direct approach for bringing needed social change. Simply elect Christians to political office. On the surface, this might seem an appealing answer to America's declining morality. It is, however, simplistic and dangerous triumphalism. To suggest that electing Christians to public office will solve all public ills is not only presumptuous and theologically questionable, it's also untrue. Today's enthusiasm for political solutions to the moral problems of our culture arise from a distorted view of both politics and spirituality. Too low a view of the power of a sovereign God and too high a view of the ability of man. End quote. Now, just in case some of you non-political types in here are kind of shrugging off with what I am telling you tonight because, quote, you don't see yourself as a politician, you're not into politics, and so you think this has no relevance to you. I draw your attention to what Luke continues to say in verse 2. Read what he says there. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, who are these names that Luke begins verse 2 with Annas and Caiaphas? Well, it turns out they are a father and son duo who both respectively served as the high priest of God's people during this day. In other words, they were the spiritual leader of God's people people. And if you read John's gospel in the 18th chapter, you come to find they were also the two co-conspirators who led the charge of the unjust arrest of Jesus that resulted in his crucifixion. Think about that. Spiritual leaders who are responsible for leading people to God were single-handedly responsible for causing the most atrocious betrayal of God. That should shock us, should it not? That should be outrageous. The idea that spiritual leaders could do the most atrocious betrayal against God, that's something that should cause us to be filled with frustration and fury. And yet, sadly, honestly, it doesn't. You know why? Because stuff like this still happens all the time. 2020 was a terrible year, was it not? where so many prominent spiritual leaders, where so many well-respected spiritual figureheads of the Christian faith in our country fell upon scandal to scandal and scandal. And as a result, certain people who would claim to be Christians responded on their various public platforms, I used to be a Christian, but because of the hypocrisy, because of the ridiculousness, I no longer follow Jesus I am no longer a Christ follower. You know, based on what Luke is telling us tonight, he would rebuke such people. He would tell of such people that for you to behave this way, for you to renounce your faith because of the failures of those that you put your hope in, from a spiritual standpoint, that tells me that you put your hope in man, not in God. 
And Christian, it is my hope, it is my prayer that none of us ever makes that kind of terrible mistake. You know, I am not so presumptuous as to ever assume that any of your guys' stability from a spiritual standpoint is dependent upon your hope in me. If it is, please don't tell me because what you're essentially telling me is that I failed you as your pastor. Listen, the stability of your faith should only be on the spirit of God, not on the spirituality of any man of God or woman of God. Let me say that again. The stability of your faith, Christian, should only be on the spirit of God, not on the spirituality of any woman of God or man of God, okay? Because if it is, you're not gonna be prepared for Christmas. Because what is the, one of the primary reasons to why Christmas happened? It is so that we could welcome, we could receive the one person who we should put our hope in. And guess what? It's not a man. He is not a man. He is the God man. He is the only person where the government can lay on his shoulders and the burden of it will not cause him to stumble into scandal, into compromise. He is the God man who is the true high priest who can really lead people to God rather than cause massive betrayal against God. If you put your hope in the God man and not in man, you are truly preparing for Christmas because you are fulfilling what Christmas came to fulfill for you to make room for your king, for your God to come to you, the one who you should put your hope in and the one who you should put your hope in alone. So that's one of the ways that we prepare for Christmas. We trust and put our hope in God, not man. But you know, that's not the only preparation that we must do. And to tell you of another, let me go to my next point. Stop playing the victim. Read again with me verse one, but let's take it down to verse three, where it says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want to draw your attention to two things to what I just read to you. The first is found in verse 1, and that's the phrase, the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. And the other is the word during in verse 2. Those two things tell us that God's people have been massively disappointed in people they hoped in for quite a long time quite a long time. In fact, if you do some background studies to the political and social climate that God's people were going through when Luke penned these words, you would come to find that they were disappointed for decades, even centuries. And as a result, it developed in them to what I call a collective victim mindset, a collective victim mindset. Consider these words from Bible scholar Gerald Hall. He writes this, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. He would have grown up with stories of conquest and oppression. These stories recounted the many waves of foreign invasion that sought to subjugate the Jewish people. The Roman occupation of Israel was the last in a long line of invasions beginning with the Babylonians, then with the Persians and the Greeks. History records that the Jewish people were more often the victims than the victors in their fight for national sovereignty, end quote. By the time Luke wrote these words, God's people have had enough and they've endured so much trauma and it left the damage of causing them to have a victim mindset. 
Now, what is this victim mindset? It's the mindset to where when a person has it, they always see themselves by saying, woe is me. I'm always the victim of my problems, but conversely, they always look at other people. Shame on you, for you are always responsible for my problems. That's the victim mindset. And it was that very mindset that John the Baptist came to confront and to challenge when he arrives on the scene in verse 2, because what was his fundamental message to God's people? He says this, repentance and the forgiveness of sin. John was preaching to people who had the perpetual chronic habit of always seeing themselves as the victim, or as I simply put it, of playing the victim. And John confronted that habit with his message, stop playing the victim. Start seeing yourself for who you are ultimately. You are a sinner who needs to repent of your sins. See, that is the other preparation we must make in order to truly prepare properly Christmas. We must stop playing the victim. And I got to tell you, I believe this is one of the most crucial message that the world needs to hear and it needs to heed because I think it goes without saying that most people, dare I say all people, tend to always see themselves as the victim. They never see themselves as the victimizer. And here's what's so uncanny about all this. This is proven to us, especially during this time of year. What do I mean? Well, let me explain. You know, most people tend to think of Christmas as a time where the expectation is most people would have a positive, peaceful, grateful demeanor towards everybody, right? I mean, that's what we call Christmas spirit. And yet what we see so often either on the news or from our own firsthand witness, most people during this time have the opposite perspective. They're angry, they're bitter, they even get violent. Let me give you some real examples. Did you know that on Christmas Day, there is the highest rate of domestic violence than any other day across the world? It's true. The day that has the most domestic violence than any other day of the year happens on Christmas. Did you also know that on the night between Christmas Eve and Christmas, like tonight, there is the most car thefts and car break-ins than any other night of the year? And did you know that in the month of December, the Christmas month, that we have the highest rate of retail theft than any other month of the year? 30% higher to be exact. Why is it that we see this behavior during this time? Couldn't it be possible that people feel justified in victimizing others because they feel they've been victimized first? Isn't it possible that people feel excused in doing inexcusable things because they believe inexcusable things have been done to them? You know, we live in a world and in a society that promotes and perpetuates a victim mindset to be cultivated in the minds of the individuals of our society. And because that is so, we have so much chronic problems and we face so much danger. Consider this insightful quote from Pastor James Ward in his book, Zero Victim. He writes this quote, victim thinking causes us to live from a defensive posture because we feel the need to protect ourselves from a perceived threat. When we conclude other people and institutions are against us, we tend to live self-centered lives where we become primary concerned about our needs and doing what pleases us. Because we don't expect our enemies to care for us, self-preservation, self-interest become our number one focus. We seek to avoid victimization at all costs, eventually producing a victim mentality society. We live our lives caring mostly for ourselves and not for other people. 
I promise this self in <laughs> I promise this self-centered, self-serving victim thinking multiplied in the lives of millions of citizens within a nation serves as a catalyst to national moral decline. End quote. Sorry about that. I was struggling there just a moment. What's he saying? He's saying the victim mindset is like a cancer to society. It multiplies, it metastasizes, and it brings damage and destruction and does the exact opposite of what Christmas was created to create. Because what is another primary reason for Christmas? We say it all the time. Peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. That's one of the primary reasons why Christmas happened And yet, the victim mentality does not promote this kind of peace, this kind of goodwill. Victim thinking does not promote peace. It promotes protest. Victim thinking does not promote benevolence. It promotes bitterness. Victim thinking does not promote being of one accord. It promotes being an antagonistic posture towards one another. The victim mindset goes against the very reason of why Christmas occurred and why it's called to be celebrated. It hinders peace on earth, and it does not promote goodwill towards men. So there you have two preparations that we must do if we want to truly and properly prepare for Christmas. We need to stop playing the victim, and we need to start hoping in God, not man. Now, I know when you hear this, quite honestly... If you're like me, you get discouraged. Why? Because let's be brutally honest. We tend to chronically hope in man, not God. Oh, I know you could say to me at church to my face, oh, PJ, I trust in God. But you look at your behavior, you look at your emotions, you trust in man, whether it's political man, whether it's wealthy man, whether it's educated man, whether it's good-looking man, good-looking woman, Whatever it might be, it is some human being rather than the one who created that human being for you to put your hope in him. And not only that, you know that you have some good in your life. You know you've been blessed, but if you weigh the scales of your life so honestly, you tend to feel that the world has dumped more garbage on you than you've ever dumped onto the world, that more wrong has been done to you than you've ever wronged anybody else. In other words, you do play the victim. And so you hear me saying to you that if you want to prepare properly for Christmas, you got to do the very things that you chronically don't do. And now you're asking me, pastor, is there a way, knowing who I am, what I tend to do for me to prepare for Christmas properly? And the answer is, yeah, there is. But let me show you by going to my next point. Realize God is most important. Let's read again verse 4 down to verse 6 of our passage where Luke says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, repent, or excuse me, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Okay. Interestingly, Luke starts using certain imageries in his writing. He talks about mountains. He talks about valleys. He talks about crooked ways. And these are important things to understand because what he's trying to tell us by using these images, right, are symbols of insurmountable obstacles. Symbols of insurmountable obstacles. You know, back in the days of the ancient world, whenever a person had to get to a certain destination and they were confronted with a mountain, with a deep valley, with crooked paths, most likely they weren't going to get to where they needed to go. Their destination was cut short. 
which means they couldn't get to where they needed to go and the resources and the supplies they needed from the other place or the people they needed to connect to would not happen, okay? That's what Luke is trying to convey by using these symbolic images of these topographical obstacles. And when you understand that, then you understand what he is trying to do here. He is trying to show us that when we face obstacles in life, we will suffer tremendous sorrow, tremendous pain because of the fact that we cannot get to the thing that we are deprived of because of obstacles. You know, it's not until you realize how precious and how priceless something is until you have an obstacle that gets in the way of you getting it. Sometimes you don't realize how important, how precious, how priceless something really is until there's an obstacle getting in the way from you to getting that thing that you so want. Let me give you an example. A woman can't get pregnant because of the obstacle of her body or her husband's body and as a result, that woman probably knows way better than a mother of multiple kids of how precious children are. A child of divorce cannot experience having his entire family on Christmas. And as a result, that child knows better than any kid in a stable home how priceless family is. A grown son who can't go home for Christmas because of words spoken between him and his father, that son knows more than any other of how important relationships are. Obstacles have the unique ability of revealing some of the most precious and priceless things because of the devastations that we feel when we are deprived of those things because of obstacles. Now, holding that thought in mind, let's go back to what Luke says in verses five and six. He says, that there is something out there, one specific thing, one particular thing that has all the obstacles that could ever be thrown against anything. Notice how he talks about every mountain, every valley, every hill. According to Luke, there is some specific thing that has all the possible obstacles that reality could ever throw up that is against this thing, which would imply that to be deprived of this thing would be the most heart-wrenching, the most tragic, the most despicable thing that could ever happen to that person who cannot have this thing. And the question is, what is this thing that Luke is saying? He says it in verse six, the salvation of God. The salvation of God. What is the salvation of God? Simply put, the salvation of God is simply God himself. You know, when the Bible tells us that God came into the world as Jesus Christ so he could pay the full penalty of our sins, suffer the full punishment by dying on the cross in our place as our substitute, as our savior substitute, all of that was done to overcome the obstacle of one thing, of removing all of the obstacles so that you could have the most precious, most priceless thing of all a restored, reconciled, redeemed relationship with God. That's the whole point of salvation. It's so that not that you get saved, it's that you can have God. Listen to what Pastor John Piper says. All the saving events and all the saving blessings of the gospel are means of getting obstacles out of the way so that we might know and enjoy God most fully propitiation, redemption, forgiveness, imputation, sanctification, liberation, healing, heaven. 
None of these is good news except for one reason. They bring us to God for our everlasting enjoyment of him. If we believe all these things have happened to us, but do not embrace them for the sake of getting to God, they have not happened to us. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. End quote. What's he saying? He's saying the whole point of Jesus going through all that trauma, all that turmoil, all that pain and suffering known as the cross is so that you could have the most precious, most priceless thing of all. You could have God. And that is the other preparation that you must have prepared in you so that you can truly celebrate Christmas appropriately. And here's what's interesting. It's when you've done this preparation that you can do the other two that I mentioned earlier. Let me show you. When you recognize, when you believe, and when you accept that God is the most important of all, that means you will only hope in God. Not a politician, not a pastor, not a parent, not your progeny, children, not prosperity, but the person of God and God alone. And when you further remember that the reason why you can have this person is because he came into the world as a human being so he could suffer the greatest victimization of all, that will wake you up from your playing the victim. Because when you are confronted with Jesus Christ, you are confronted with the person whose victimization exceeds your own, whose victimization that you cannot compare to, whose victimization that you cannot catch up to. And as a result, it will humble your protesting spirit and will hush your prideful mouth where you're always claiming the world owes me and instead you'll say, I owe everything to him. That is what happens when you understand God is the most important of all that you only discover in the gospel. And so here's my question to you, NCF, here and watching. Have you prepared for Christmas? Did it begin with you recognizing and accepting that your God is the most important of all, that made you hope in him above man because you were confronted that he truly is the greatest victim who was victimized for you so that you stop playing the victim. If you have, then I will say, you, along with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you are in better position to bless others this holiday season. You know, I do love Christmas. And one of the things that I love so much about it is because people do have this positive demeanor to do a little bit more than what they usually do where they do things for the sake of others, not just for themselves, whether it's putting some coins in the Salvation Army container outside their grocery store or putting up holiday lights in front of their house so their neighbors can actually enjoy some of this festiveness. But you know, it's only the people of God. It's only people like you that can bring tremendous blessing because when you have prepared for Christmas, not only have you received the one who you've come to prepare room for, but you're now equipped and you're now inspired to actually bring peace on earth and to spread goodwill towards men. That is the best thing that the people of this world could receive. 
not a couple coins, not some festive lights, but you and your community going out and spreading the peace that only comes from the one you put your hope in, that can only spread goodwill towards all men because of the God who gave up his will for you. Have you prepared for Christmas? I pray for the sake of this world, you have and you continue will. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to remember the truths of tonight's message. Father, so often we let every Christmas go on by without much deep reflection, without much thought. But Father, I pray that that would not be the case this evening and that on this upcoming Christmas day tomorrow that we have truly prepared ourselves. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to do that now. Help us to do that even as we end this prayer so that we can give heartfelt thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.